about a month or summer of 2021, spring summer of 2021, some of you may know this, but we had a, a bit of a scare with our son Graham. Uh, some of you might have been praying for that at the time. You know, he, he had these postules on his head that kept showing up that were like weird yellow infected kind of looking things. And we went to a couple different skin doctors and eventually they, they kind of gave us a, we need to do a biopsy of this. We think it could be one of two things, and they looked pretty gloomy when they were telling us this, and we researched the name, and one of them turned out to be this illness, I'll never forget the name of it, it was called Lagerhans histiocytosis, and it's a rare form of cancer, um, slash kind of like an autoimmune type of thing, that is incurable, and not a pretty thing for you to have your almost two-year-old go through, and so we were devastated, we were waiting for like three weeks for this biopsy and then the results of it and trying to figure out and we were kind of sure that we were going to be that family that has the two-year-old living in a hospital, you know, for like most of their childhood. And obviously you've seen Graham since. Um, it turned out not to be that thing. But for those few weeks we were on edge and if, if your parents, you know, you, you know that there is nothing you wouldn't do for your kids, right? Like you would throw yourself in front of a bus without even blinking if it could save the life of your child. And so one of, the, one of the hardships when we have kids go through things like that is that you're utterly powerless as a parent. Like, it doesn't matter if you've, like, diligently saved up money, you know, and you could throw whatever money you had at it. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. Right? Like, you, you're stuck. You're just at the mercy of medicine and, and the Lord to do his thing. And so there was this powerlessness for those weeks. And I think for me that was the worst thing because I'm a doer. Right? Maybe you're like that. Like, I love to do, and I like to solve a problem, and if something comes up like that, I'm like, all right, here's the 15 steps, hard as they will be. We'll do it, and then we'll move on. And some problems just aren't solvable. And when it's your kids, that's devastating. Right? Now, he's fine. Right? But I tell you this because this morning we're looking at a passage in the Gospel of John in chapter 4 where a dad faces a similar but far worse scenario. Right? And so I wanted to just put you in the mindset of, of what this guy with this official in John 4 is going through and what's going through his mind as we get into the story of this. Because I think it's important to sometimes put ourselves in the emotional headspace of the people that Jesus interacts with. Right? This is one of those times where I can kind of put myself in the emotional headspace. Right? Now this official's son was way worse off. He was actually dying, right? He wasn't me waiting for a kid's diagnosis. He got the bad one and was told it was fatal. And so his son is dying, and we pick up with this interaction that he has with Jesus in Galilee. And so just really quickly, um, we have... Huh? There we go. To catch you up, um, last time we talked about the wedding in Cana, and that was happening in Cana in Galilee. And since then, Jesus has done a lot of things. Right? The, the passage of last week and the passage of this week form these kind of brackets in a literary sense in the book of John where he's now circled around a whole bunch of places and he's back in Galilee where he started at the wedding. Right? And since then he's done some really significant stuff. Like he had this cleansing the temple experience. Have you ever heard of Jesus overturning the money tables? Right? He has that. That's happened. That's done. Right? He has gone to meet at night with Nicodemus, the Pharisee who wants to come to him and asks about, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he tells him, you have to be born again. And he defines for us what it means to be born again as followers of Christ. So that's a pretty significant thing. Right? He has gone and spent time with John the Baptist and received a blessing and an exaltation from John the Baptist. 
where there was people that were following John, and, and John says, no, 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 wait, not me, but follow him, right? And he has had the encounter coming back through to here with the woman in Samaria, right? They go through Samaria because it's quicker than going all the way around, and he encounters the woman at the well, and he has this beautiful exchange with her about living water, right? And so Jesus is addressing all of these different people, and if you think about it, they're all kind of Jewish, like, hot points, right? The wedding was about purification, right? The woman is about the well and the water that comes from it. That's a significant theme, He's been attacking the temple, and he goes in and he cleans up there. Then he meets with a rabbi, right, and he cleans up there, a Pharisee. And so he's going through all these Jewish institutions and dismantling them one by one, and then he comes back to Galilee, and he has this encounter with this official. So let's read in John 4, verses 46 through 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to feel better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. First off, thank you, John, uh, for just telling us the numbers of the signs. Like, we don't have to read through and, like, wonder if, was this a sign? Was this not? It was kind of a miracle, but it was, like, a minor one, right? Like, was predicting the the woman at the well's future a sign? I don't know. No, John tells us this was the second sign, right? When we had the wedding, he said this was the first sign. So John's really great, like... He would make a great table of content guy, right? He's really good at telling us exactly where in the gospel we are. And so we come to this passage, and Jesus is returning from Galilee, and we learn of an official. That's the word that it's used, right? In the Greek, this this is a different, different person. This is not necessarily official, but far more likely a kingsman or nobleman, right? The Greek word is basilikos. And it refers to people of nobility or people of rank with the king. So it's it's a member of the king's court. And the king at the time would be Herod, right? He'll come into play later in the gospel. So this is most likely like a kingsman of Herod's, which means he is not a Jewish person. He's not one of God's people. But he's very powerful and very wealthy, right? This is a guy who's used to just buying and getting what he wants, But his son is dying, and as we talked about, when your kids are sick and dying and there's no money in the world, right, that can solve or make that go away, all you have is medicine and the Lord to intervene. And so he comes desperate to Jesus, and he travels, we're told, from Capernaum, which is about 18 miles or like a day's journey if you you have donkeys or horses, right? It takes about a day, two-thirds of a day, half a day, whatever, depending on how motivated you are to get from Capernaum to Galilee, 
And what's notable about this is that he actually comes himself. Right? This guy is a wealthy man. Like, this is a billionaire. He, he would send somebody normally. Right? They didn't travel to ask a question of someone else. They either sent a, a, a proxy to do it, or they sent for the person to be brought to them. This guy is used to getting his way. Right? He is a big deal in this area. But yet he travels to Jesus. It's a bit of a unique thing. It's also noteworthy that he asks Jesus to come to Capernaum with him. Right? He doesn't bring the son. See, for me, efficiency's sake would say, I'm going to throw the son on a donkey. I'm going to get him to Jesus as quickly as possible. Here's this guy who's been healing. I don't know how much time I have left. Right? Like if I go one 18-mile journey, it takes this long. If I have to bring Jesus back, it takes this long. Like odds are my son won't make it. He doesn't bring his son for whatever reason. We're not really told why, but he doesn't bring him with him, even though it might have been more efficient, right? And so he asks Jesus to come back with him to his place and heal. This guy wants it his way because he's used to getting it his way, right? He doesn't bring the son to Jesus. He doesn't tell Jesus, like, can you heal him from afar somehow? He just asks him to come and do the miracle because people have been watching Jesus do these miraculous signs and wonders. It's become kind of a sideshow in a way almost. Right? People are following Jesus because they're following him. He has his disciples. But there's this whole set of people that really are just following Jesus wherever he goes to see what happens next. The way that we would maybe follow some major celebrity today. Right? Today we can do it on Twitter. Twitter didn't exist. So if you wanted to follow somebody back then, for those of you under the age of you know, 25, right, you actually had to like, Move your feet and follow them wherever they went, right? Jesus' miracles weren't live-streamed. None of that stuff happened. And so he had these people that were walking with him, but the whole reason they were there is just to see what this guy did. He was interesting. Maybe not significant to them, maybe not influential to them, but he was interesting. And so that's why the official comes. He's heard of this Jesus guy, and all he knows is this dude does miracles. Everywhere he goes, he seems to be healing people, and, and doing crazy stuff that no one else could do. Um, yeah, if there's any hope I have, let me go get him and bring him back to my house. And hopefully he can heal my son on his own terms. Preferably do it in a public way so that people see Jesus performing a miracle for my household. Now I'm, you know, I have an inn and I look cool and all those kinds of things. So he wants it on his own terms. And Jesus' reply is a little unique. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So he goes to the official and he says, listen, uh, like, I, I see who you are. Unless, unless you see these signs and wonders, you're never going to believe in me. And the official, I don't even know, really knows what it means to believe in Jesus. Right? He might believe that Jesus can do a certain thing. He obviously believes that Jesus can heal or he wouldn't be there. But believe in Jesus for, for the sake of what? And so that's why Jesus says, unless you see these signs and wonders, you won't believe. You're just here for the signs and wonders. And it sounds like a strong rebuke, but it's not really as strong as we think it is. And we'll get to that in a second. The official replies by almost kind of ignoring it. He just asks him, he says, please come now, my son is dying. Right? And when we look at the Greek for asked, all the times that the official utters it, it's a much stronger word. The ESV is a great translation, but every once in a while it gets it a little weaker. It really means that he begged. And it's, and it's a tense that, su that suggests that it's a continuous begging. 
right? This guy is at the feet of Jesus begging him to come with him because his son is dying and he has no other hope, right? And so he probably doesn't even really hear what Jesus says to him. He just, yeah, 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 yeah. Will you just please come? Like, whatever you, lesson you need to teach me, you can teach me later. But my, like, my son is dying. Can we just go? Can we do the, the lesson thing later? Can I learn what it is that you want me to learn later? I just need you to do this for me now. And so he's not quite getting it. And so here's what Jesus does next. His action is very unique because in a way, he gives the man what he wants. But in another, he doesn't. He says to him, right, go and your son will live. So he doesn't indulge. He doesn't go with the guy like he wants him to. He doesn't go down back to Capernaum and do the thing spectacle. All he says is, your son will live. It's essentially like, listen, your son will be fine. Just go home. Like, he'll live. He'll make it. And then we're told that the man responded by going away and believing. He believes and he leaves. Because for him, it's enough. The official is satisfied. And we're told that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And he approaches some servants the next day, having traveled home. And he finds out that his son is healed. And then he asks them, well, what was it? The seventh hour, right? The seventh hour was 1 p.m., the Jewish people start counting at 6 a.m. each day. So the first hour is 6, the second 7 a.m. So this is 1 p.m. when he's encountering Jesus. And we're told that he doesn't encounter his servants till the next day. So presumably he didn't travel overnight. Right? So you, do you see the timeline error? This guy was urgent on the way there, but not really urgent on the way back. He believes Jesus' words so much that he doesn't rush home the same day. It was a 1 p.m. encounter. He could have made it. But he doesn't. Who knows what he did? We could speculate, and I don't like to speculate on stuff the Bible doesn't say. Maybe he had business to conduct. Maybe he was just slow and spent another day away from home and the kids, whatever. But for whatever reason, there's not an urgency in his return. And when he comes back, the servants meet him and tell him, listen, your son is healed. He goes, yeah. What time was it? The seventh hour. That's, yep, that makes sense. That's the time that I was meeting with Jesus. This official, after he encounters Jesus, is so nonchalant about this. He has a belief that is so fervent that he just assumes that it worked. Right? His faith is very much restored in a way that it hadn't been before this encounter because Jesus comes at him from a different angle. He doesn't indulge and heal the way he wants him to, but he heals his son he sends him on his way. When he goes home, right, he, he has the son back. And he rejoices. And then we're told later that his whole household believed. This whole household believed as a result. Right? And so the whole house of this guy, his whole court, and if he's an official the size of which people say he is, well then, he would have had a very large household of people to believe alongside of him. And so we have this mass of people that get converted as a result of this. Now John emphasizes the sign aspect of Jesus, as we talked about, right? No miracle is just a miracle. Everything means something. Everything is a sign of some kind. And this is no exception. Notice how Jesus performs the sign, right? The man comes demanding this public miracle. And the man doesn't get the miracle then, but he only gets what? Words. All he gets are the words of Jesus. And that's all he has to go on. 
And so the man is expected to go away and believe in faith what he hasn't been able to see happen, right? Jesus didn't come with him. He didn't heal his son in front of his face. Right? He didn't get to have that conversation with Jesus of, now I've seen what you can do, so I believe in you. All right, we'll see you later. Right? He, he, he's leaving with at least some sense of expectation, but also perhaps some worry, right? Wouldn't you be worried in his shoes as you're traveling home? Well, he said my son is healed, but like, I can't see him yet. Like, I got to go back to... Like the whole way home, there's at least a part of you that has to be wondering to some degree. You might be relaxed, you might believe what Jesus said, but you're worried, at least somewhere in there until you see it with your own eyes. Jesus uses words. Because what Jesus wants from the people is for them to believe his words. They don't just want, he doesn't just want the people to follow him for what he can do, but he wants the people to actually listen to what he says. And so in this sign, he chooses to use nothing but words to send the official on his way. And he expects that that official will act in faith, respond, and go home. Not having seen whether it actually worked or not until the next day. And he does. And so it's not so much a rebuke. Right, when he tells them, unless you see signs and miracles, you won't believe. It's a course correction. He's saying, listen, we live in a world that tells us that you should, you know, seeing is believing. But it works a little bit differently in the kingdom of God. So the final result is that not only he believes, but his whole household, and the sign occurred, and an entire household comes to believe in him. And so for us, what's, what's the takeaway here? And I think the best place we can go To get the beautiful, short, one-verse answer for what we ought to take from this is Hebrews 1, and it says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith, for us to say we have faith in Christ, means that we are convicted that what he says he'll do, he'll do, even when we haven't yet realized or seen it. It's not seeing is believing, it's believing is seeing. It's a very different way of thinking from the way the world tells us to think. And that's what he's trying to get this official to understand. He goes, listen, you guys are all coming and you're seeing and then believing. I want you to believe and then go live as if you see it and eventually you will. But the belief comes before the seeing in my kingdom. So you better get that right. right? And that's why Hebrews 1 tells us that. And if you read the rest of Hebrews 1, what happens next is it gives us all these accounts of various people through scripture who believed by faith without ever being able to see. It talks about Abraham, right? Who's promised descendants as numerous as the stars. And so he goes in faith believing, but doesn't get to see it. And then it talks about you know, Enoch and, this, and, and all these different people, Abel who offered sacrifices, all throughout scripture. And then we get to verse 13 and it says this, these people, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Scripture is littered with characters who God makes promises to and those promises come to pass, but not in their lifetime. Abraham does have as many descendants as the stars, but he's dead by the time that happens. But the promise is realized, right? Because God's kingdom 
works in a time frame that is beyond just our singular one life or one generation. The Lord promised the promised land, but because of the sin of the people, most of them died and didn't get to see it. Their children did. But the promise stands. In the kingdom of God, the Lord makes promises about what it will be like, but not all of them are currently fully realized. And you may pray for things along the way, and the answer might be yes or no, or maybe, or or not maybe, yes or no, or later. The Lord is at work in our lives every single day. You may not get your way when you want it, the way that you want it. And so faith, to have faith in Christ, means that we believe what Jesus tells us, even if we don't yet see it. There will come a day in the pain of life that we walk through, right? Some of us have minor pains. Some of us have major pains in our lives. But there will come a day when that pain ends, where we will spend eternity with him in paradise and when he will come back and restore things to the way they were supposed to be, where sin will be no more, where every tear will be wiped. That is a promise. None of us right now are realizing it. But we're called to live as if it's already gone down by faith. Because he promises it. And because God does not break his promises. What Jesus wants the official to know is that he has come to usher in a whole new type of kingdom. And you're going to see miracles and you're going to see signs. And sometimes you're going to be asked to assume things on faith. And you may not see a sign to tell you that it's for real. But the Lord is good. The Lord keeps his promises. He is going to come back. And he is going to restore things. And there will come a point where every one of us in this room who is under Christ will sit at the throne of God and walk with him and talk with him and experience the real presence manifested with no more pain and no more sorrow and no more COVID and no more worries and no more crime and no more issues of health and no more animosity and broken friendships and weird stuff happening in our families when we get together for Thanksgiving. None of those things will exist someday. So are we going to live as people who have already had that promise realized? Because if God says it's going to happen, it's a done deal. He is signed on the dotted line. He's not going to renege it. But man, it's hard to live that way, isn't it? It's hard to trust in the everyday It's really hard when life hits us in ways that we don't expect to somehow still hold fast to the idea that God holds us in the palm of his hand. Some of us have life and experiences that would cause us to wonder each and every moment of our lives, where are you? And his response is, I'm here. You'll see. Just press in. Just wait. Just a little longer. And you'll have things that you can't even ask Or imagine. You'll get to be in my presence where there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death. That's what we're looking forward to in Lent, right? We look at this the death that's around us and we spend these days thinking about this stuff and realizing that that's that's not where we live yet. So that when we get to Easter, we can celebrate that, yeah, but it's coming. Signed, sealed, delivered, right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you make them in the first place. 
that you make promises to a people who anything but deserve it. That as we live lives of, of sin and shame and we walk in ways that are in no way pleasing to you, that you tell us that there is a day coming where that pain will be gone, where there will be no more mourning, no more death, no more fear, no more agony, but that we just get to be in your presence. And Lord, we praise you that we worship a God who not only makes promises, but doesn't break them. Lord, every one of us has lived the truth of broken promises. We've had people tell us things that haven't gone, come true. We've had people make grandiose gestures and, and tell us what they're going to do for us and how they're going to come through for us, only to fail because each one of us are sinners and we do fail time and time again, but you do not. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that we might place our faith in your promise that does not fail. That you might be in our midst and remind us of that truth. That when we're willing to, to give up, that you might remind us and, and show us and demonstrate an extra measure of your presence, that we might feel your peace, that we might hear you say, there's something coming. I know you want to give up hope, but just hold on a little longer. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.